0: Thank you guys for being here on Super Bowl Sunday with us. Um, I say this every time I preach, but there are many different things that you could be doing today. And especially today, there are many different things that you could be doing today. Um, And we are just very thankful that you would spend some time with us um, on this Sunday. Um, uh, This is not in my note. What an example of church. Um, I I am so thankful for this place. Um, And the consistent reminder that... that, um, Reunion is to me of what of what the church is. And just us coming together and being there for each other, um, no matter what, and doing our part in it. Um, praying, being on a meal train, whatever that might be. Underscoring for forty-five minutes. Well done, my <laughs> everyone's got to do everyone's got to do their job. Um, uh, I, went to a, I went to a church once, uh, uh, and uh, I'll, I'll leave the church name. I'm oh, sorry. You just reminded me of this. Um, that uh, as the pastor was coming up, there's a the girl playing piano. And as the pastor was coming up, she's like, getting ready to walk off. And he just goes, hey, can you just, like, play the entire message? And he preached for an hour. And she <laughs> played the entire time. Do you remember this, Mike? We visited that church. And I, I was, the entire time I was like, her hands must be cramping. Wow. It's going to be terrible. Oh, it's brutal. I'll never do that to you. Um, <laughs> so yes, we are going through this series in Mark called Eyes on Jesus. And uh, it's been really fun. We've gone through many of the Gospels here at Reunion, if you've been with us uh, for a while. And we are very, very excited to be going through Mark. Mark is such an interesting book, as Mike um, said. Mark writes really um, poignantly. Um, and it's a fun, fun book to go through. And it's really exciting doing this reading plan. Me and my wife have been doing it almost every night together you know we're better than 50 50 i think um uh, but uh, uh we've been catching up when we need to um so if you are behind no time like the present to get on the train uh we would love for you to join us and that and in those spiritual disciplines um the timing has worked out perfect as we'll be at resurrection sunday in like two months which is crazy um january took forever to finish but we're, we're getting there um we're in the season where Mike was talking about we're looking to build faith in our church, in our lives, individually and collectively, um, which has been really exciting. I think it's the barometer that every church should be measured by. As many uh, churches measure, they measure by a million different things, not all bad things, uh, many of them good. But we believe every church should be measured by, are you becoming closer to Jesus? Is your faith growing? Are you learning to give more to him every day? Are we becoming new? I love that new" song that Janae sang. Are we becoming newer every day? Um, and I think this wonderfully transitions us into Mark 6. Mark 6 is a really long passage. Um, if you looked ahead at all, it's about 56 verses. And we're going to read every piece of it. It's going to be great. So buckle up. Um, I famously once, the first time I preached here, I tell the story a lot. So sorry if you've heard it. But I once read the entire book of Joni here. I'm sorry I love the Bible. <laughs> Sue me. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we're going to read Mark 6. Um, we're in the um, Christian Standard Bible, if you want to follow along. Um, I don't own a Christian Standard Bible, so I'm reading from my phone. Um, that, that is where this comes from. Um, West is not into the Bible as so much as I am. Um, Mark 6. Rejection at Nazareth. He left there and came to his hometown, and, d- and his disciples followed him. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished. Where did this man get these things, they said? What is, what is this wisdom and what has been given to him? How are these miracles performed by his hands? Isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, um, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And aren't his sisters here with us? So they were offended by him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his household. He was not able to do a miracle there, um, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. He was going around the villages teaching. What is happening here? Jesus has come back to his hometown, and Jesus is a carpenter. He is not um, a high-class religious human. And people are like, what are you doing here? They are making fun of him. This um, Actually, this term that they say... Um, What is this wisdom that has been given to him? And how are these miracles performed? Isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary? If you read that um, in the original translation, it's literally them making fun of him because they're like, carpenters, you don't do what you do. Moving on. um, The commissioning of the 12. He summoned the 12 and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over unclean spirits. He instructed them to take nothing for the road except a staff, no bread, no traveling bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and to put on an extra shirt. He said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that place. If any place does not welcome you or listen to you, when you leave there, shake off the dust of your feet. It's a testimony against them. So they went out and preached, and the people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. What is happening here? (laughs) I'm taking breaks. Um, the, uh, The disciples are being sent out on their first mission. Their first time being sent out by Jesus in Mark 6 to go and spread the news of who he is. Um, Which, if anyone has been on a missions trip and you remember back to your first one, it can be scary times depending on where you're going, how far it might be, how long you might be away from home. It's not easy the first time you get out of your comfort zone in a way like that. I imagine the disciples had a lot of those same fears. Moving on. King Herod heard about, it, um, heard about it because Jesus' name had become well known. The disciples went on a missions trip. Jesus was becoming more famous. Makes sense. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that's why miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he's Elijah. Still others said he's a prophet, like one of the prophets from long ago. When Herod heard of it, he said, John, the one I beheaded, has been raised, for Herod himself had given orders to arrest John and to chain him in prison on account of Herodias, his brothers and Philip's wife, and married her. John had been uh, telling Herod, It's not lawful for you, Um, it's not lawful for your brothers, Uh, sorry, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias held a grudge against him and wanted to kill him, but she could not because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing he was righteous and a holy man. When Herod heard him, he would be very perplexed and yet like to listen to him. An opportunity came on his birthday. Um, When when Herod gave a banquet for the nobles, military commanders, and leading men of Galilee, when Herodias' own daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. The king said to the girl, ask me whatever you want, and I'll give it to you. He promised her with an oath, whatever you ask me, I will give you you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, what should I ask for? John the Baptist's head, she said. At once she hurried to the king and said, I want you to give me John the Baptist's head on a platter immediately. Although the king was deeply distressed, and because of his oaths and guests, he did not want to refuse her. The king immediately sent for an executioner and commanded him to bring John's head. So he went out and um, he went and beheaded him in prison, brought his head on a platter, and gave it to the girl. Then the girl gave it to her mother. When John's disciples heard about it, they came and removed his corpse and placed it in the tomb. For those who don't know, John the Baptist, a man who baptized Jesus, also one of Jesus' cousins. So somebody Jesus was close to. Um, I have in my notes here that I had a quick recap, verse 1 through 29. So that's that. I hope you guys have all the context now. Um, there was a, you could probably do three different messages in the time in there, but it's ten forty six and it's Super Bowl Sunday. You know, we gotta, we gotta go. And so uh, we're on to the feeding of the 5,000 where we're gonna spend the crux of our time today. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. He said to them, come away by yourselves to a remote place and rest for a while. For many people were coming and going and they did not have time to eat. So they went away in the boat by themselves to a remote place. But many saw them leaving and recognized them. And they ran on foot from all the towns and arrived ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and had compassion on them. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Then he began to teach Them many things. When it grew late, his disciples approached him and said, This place is deserted and it's already late. Send them away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages to buy themselves something to eat. You give them something to eat, he responded. They said to him, Should we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? He asked them, How many loaves do you have? Go see. When they found out, they said five and two fish. Then he instructed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. A weird way to say that. I haven't figured out why. Um, he took the lo- five loaves and two fish. And looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke the loaves. Remember, blessed and broke, please. He kept giving them to his disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. Everyone ate and was satisfied. They picked up 12 baskets full of pieces of bread and fish. And that those who had eaten the loaves were 5,000 men. This is one of the most famous stories I would say in the Bible for those of us who grew up um, in a uh, church. You remember the flannel graphs, right? The one where you would stick like, as many people on the mountainside as you can to like represent 5,000 somehow. Um, this is an incredibly famous verse that has incredible meaning to our lives. The first thing that I want to point out about this is the first 1 to 29 context we had. What all happened in there? The disciples went out for their first, um, first mission. Jesus had been made fun of in his own town um, for his uh, calling, really. Um, and the third thing, Jesus' cousin had been murdered. So where do we find the disciples and Jesus here? they're looking for some time away, they're looking for a weekend off, right? Because a lot of life had happened. There were many things leading up to this event, that, um, the feeding of the 5,000, and they, the disciples and Jesus were looking for some time away. Um, Jesus, as Mike was talking about earlier, had regular rhythms of rest. These are built all in the gospels. We find them everywhere. That um, Jesus would get away, he would look away. But oftentimes I find in our lives, when we are looking to rest, we look to rest when we are at our most exhausted point, right? We look to rest when we, um, when we have crashed. I think Jesus brings up a really interesting point here. He has rhythms of rest built into his life so that he can be interruptible. If we have regular rhythms of rest in, um, built into our life, we can be interruptible in any of those times, because we know when the next one is coming. We know that we can push on to the next, and it's not this wait until we have a full breakdown. I think that's an important point here, and we will get to why in a little bit. Um, I'm learning rhythms of rest in my life right now. I tend to be a personality who likes to push through walls. My wife, on the other hand, is very good at rhythms of rest. She's taught me a lot. I was talking with a friend um, on Thursday, who is similar in personality to me. And we were talking about how hard it is to slow down. And I was talking about, I wish I had some of Claire's ability to slow down. There's um, a meditation guru who I heard um, tell a story once. so, But I think it could be applied to many spiritual disciplines. Um, the story goes, somebody came up to him. And they asked him how long I should meditate for. And he said, 30 minutes a day. And the guy said, I I don't have 30 minutes a day to to do this. And he was like, well, then you should probably do an hour a day. Uh, And I think that's something that's very, very true when it comes to our life in prayer, rest, and anything. When you see yourself saying, hey, I think I might be capped out, you actually probably need it more and more regularly. And consider that when you're building rhythms into your life. Consider where you feel stretched and know that God can use you in this moments, but you have to, have to be ready for them. Verses 32 to 34. There's a big question here that I feel like is never asked in the feeding of the 5,000. How did 5,000 people just find Jesus in the middle of nowhere? He wasn't in the middle of the city. He had intentionally escaped away. He had gotten away into the countryside, and somehow 5,000 people all tweeted about him and found out where he was. Just kidding. There was no Twitter back then. Um, in (laughs) Uh, In this passage, we see that Jesus went to a remote area. It's very intentional saying that. For some context into this time, Jerusalem was dominated by Roman rule. And to escape their grasp, the people who were the true revolutionaries, the guys who didn't want to be dominated by the man, you know? They would flock to the countryside, many of the real revolutionaries who really hated foreign invasion, and who could blame them, and did not have a sterling reputation as invaders, if you have watched documentaries on the History Channel. Um, They did not have a sterling reputation. These were the ones who were most looking for deliverance, the ones who were most looking for a um, revolutionary leader. If you know anything about your Old Testament, the Old Testament is full about a leader coming to set the Israelites free. Um, so in this passage in 33 where it says Jesus saw them as a sheep, a sheep without a shepherd. That is actually a callback to the Old Testament and him saying, I know what you're looking for and I see that and I can be your shepherd. That being said, if people were um, lining up in crowds like this and they thought that a leader was there to save them, their version of leadership was probably very different than what Jesus' um, leadership version was. In verse 34, it says he had compassion on them, and he began to teach them. The people there, why did he begin to teach them? Because the people there were looking for a leader that would come and be like, let's kick Rome out of here. They've been here for too long, and we are not excited for them being, uh, for, for them being here. They're treating us unfairly. They're taking our money. They're taking our homes. This isn't working. And Jesus said when he, said he saw, when it says he saw it, had compassion on them, I can think back to so many moments in my life, and I bet you guys can think of similar ones where you just kind of feel God looking at you and being like, oh, that's really cute. You think I'm doing this right now. That's really cute. And I wonder if Jesus had some of that where he's like, oh, you guys, you guys, want, you guys want weapons. You want, to go, you want to go kill these guys and get them out of here. That's actually not how I roll. That's not how I do these things. Um, and then it says he went to teach them. I wish we got to know a little bit of what he taught here, but I assume it was a little bit of the Sermon on the Mount. It was love your enemies. It was be kind to those who persecute you. Pray for those who persecute you. If I could venture a guess, this is not what everybody wanted to hear there. But Jesus was a good speaker. He retained the crowd, it seems like. I think people were drawn to what Jesus was saying, what he was doing in those moments. We can only imagine what he was saying, but we can imagine that it was not what that they wanted. But we can imagine that the way that Jesus had was better. And we know that from the rest of his teaching, what we've been going through in March. Mark, I keep on wanting to say March. Jeez. And verse 35 to 44 is when the miracle happens, right? After he taught them in word, Jesus showed them what he was talking about in action. He taught them that love was the better way. He taught them his subversive message that we weren't gonna take this back. We weren't gonna take Jerusalem back through sword. We were going to do it my way. We were going to do it through peace. We were going to do it through forgiveness. We were going to do it, ultimately, through the cross. After he taught them in word, he showed them what he was talking about. The miracle, the miracle here is specific because it's about Jesus' revolution. We oftentimes look at Jesus' miracles and we think about them as these extravagant displays, which they were, feeding 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. I'm not taking anything away. could not do it myself. Um not taking anything away. But if Jesus came to do miracles just to display his power, I don't know, he would have just lit a boat on fire from that there or did something, right? There are bigger, more fancy ways to do that is what I'm saying. But Jesus' miracles, all of them throughout the book of Mark, throughout the Gospels really, um, are very, very specific because they're there to teach people's les- people lessons. If the people there looking came looking for a revolution. They came looking for violence. And what does Jesus hand them? He hands them bread. He hands them fish. He hands them life. He hands them sustenance. He hands them saying, saying no, we will not kill. We will love. We're going to feed. That's what he's about. And the disciples here have a reasonable suggestion, right? A very reasonable suggestion is, why don't we go get, let everybody get their own food, and then maybe they can come back, Right? I love that we give the disciples a lot of flack for not understanding Jesus' message. When I was reading this this week, I was like, that's totally reasonable. There are 5,000, that's what I would have said. I'd be like, listen, go get your own stuff, come back, we'll be here. Right? Um, it'll, be, it'll be great. It's, it's completely reasonable. But just because they're reasonable doesn't mean that they're Jesus' ideas. Oftentimes, I think Jesus' ideas are unreasonable for good reason. Because they stretch us. They make us better. They'll cause us to trust him more. They didn't have enough to feed these people, so what does Jesus ask them? Go bring what you have. And what do they bring? Five loaves and two fish. I don't know exactly how far five loaves and two fish go. Maybe two people? A fish and like two and a half pieces of bread per person? (laughs) Um, Right? It it makes sense. Um, But uh, depending on it, it doesn't go far. And I really love the miracle here because it teaches us something. It teaches us that Jesus loves to use us when we don't have enough. And this is the crux of my message today. This is the crux of the point of this story, is that Jesus loves to use you when you don't have enough. It speaks to the kind of re- revolution Jesus was talking about, not to be built on accumulation, but to, be, um, but to be built on love. Jesus is always calling us to tasks that we are unqualified for. Who can relate? I think about teen and twee. Um, right now, um, and I can imagine how disqualified they feel. I, can't, I cannot imagine, I should say, how disqualified they feel. I know many of the stories in this church right here are stories of people who have felt disqualified. I know that is my story. Every time I preach up here, um, I don't sleep the night before that well. Um, Claire actually hit me in the face last night in her sleep. It was pretty funny. It woke me up. I was like, ah, dang it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, I don't sleep that well, and it's often because I don't feel qualified for this moment. I'm not a perfect man. I'm not a pastor. I stopped going to Bible school in the eighth grade. Um, <laughs> sorry, my bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. I don't feel qualified for this often. Whether it's um, whether it's the fact that I'm a liar, I many times can hide things in my life. Um, whether it's the fact that I oftentimes um, feel like I can be mean, I can feel rude. Um, I don't feel qualified to be up here, and there are many, many other things that I could talk through. So, what is it that you feel unqualified for? Could you imagine how monumental of a task this felt for the disciples? five loaves, two fish, 5,000 people, what are you talking about, Jesus? None of this adds up. I would argue that it's when you have the least or the task seems the most impossible that Jesus wants to use you the most. That it's not just the things that we were called to, not just the things we are equipped for, and we should do that, absolutely. We should absolutely do those things. If you feel like you have a talent, Use your talents. But where do I feel like God's doing a miracle in your life in the thing that you don't feel qualified for? We see this example all over the Bible. People with nothing being used to do something great. We see it in Moses. We see it in Joshua. We see it in Isaiah. It can go on and on and on. I believe these are the places that God wants to use you the most. I believe these are the places that God wants to do a miracle in you. The disciples did the work and Jesus did the miracle. Another one of my favorite parts of this passage is that he had the disciples hand out the food. He didn't have the people come in line, but he wanted them to work. Imagine them hustling, 12 of them, to feed 5,000 people with baskets that probably just kept on getting heavier and heavier and heavier. They were running around and the disciples did the work as Jesus did the miracle. A fascinating piece of this is that God did the miracle as the disciples were doing the work. Oftentimes, I think we're waiting for a miracle to happen in our life, for us to get the job, for us to find the relationship, for us to hit a certain financial status, for us to heal from a wound, for us to heal from a sickness, before we start doing the work. And I don't think that's the way that God has called us to operate. I think God has called us to operate in a much scarier and much more transformative way. It's that in your brokenness, God can work through you. In your weakness, God can work through you. In your longing, God can work through you. In your insecurity, God can work through you. In your sickness, God can work through you. That God is doing a thing in your life already whether you know it or not. And one part I missed there, I wanted the most. Dang it. In your unbelief, God can work through you. In your unbelief, in the places in your life where you don't believe that God can work, he's working. In the places that you believe, don't believe, you can be healed. God is working in you. In the times when you just say, I won't make it. I won't make rent. I won't make blank. God is working in you and he's working not only in you but he's working through you god is looking to do a miracle in your life on this life or the next and he's also looking to do a miracle through you in the people that you come in contact with every day and that comes in small things and that comes in big things that comes in how you love people that also comes in how um that comes in how uh, we face bigger structures in our world and how we face homelessness in our community and how we face poverty in our community and how we face poverty in our world. This happens time and time again. Revolutions are usually about taking power and this is about giving your power back to you, about replenishment. But revolutions are not about that in Jesus' world. His revolutions are about giving it away and allowing him to do a miracle in what you're lacking. There's no special skill or wealth level for us to take part in what God is doing. In fact, I would say the special skills and the wealth are just opportunities for you to be you. The places for God to do something great in your life are the places where you feel like you lack. The places where you feel like, God, all I have is five loaves, two fish, and there are 5,000 people in front of me. What do I do? There are opportunities everywhere for us to love people like this. And I want us to look into our lives right now and think about where are the places we lack? Where are the places that we're asking for two things? God, can you do a miracle in me? Oh, God, can you do a miracle through me? God, can you do a miracle in me? And can you do a miracle through me? There are opportunities all around here at Reunion, right? Our Family Center Mike was talking about. Is an incredible place for that to happen. Um, we had a family just last last week, I believe, um, who as Jesse was leaving, um, uh, she was taking off. Uh, they they were grabbing their groceries that they got from here, um, and uh, they were saying they were going to walk. And I was like, "You're going to walk? There's a, a lot of groceries. How far do you live? What's going on here?" And we we come to find out um, this girl, high school girl, um, is boyfriend. Had walked, had walked out on her and left, and is, they went to Mexico, I believe it was never coming back. And um, took with them the car, did, they didn't know how they were gonna make it. And Jesse was able to give this person a ride um, with their groceries. There are opportunities everywhere for you to be a miracle in you and through you. It's not as if Jesse has a ton of time on her hands, she's got three little ones running around. But there are opportunities to give your time, to give your time, to give your energy to people. The devil wins when you believe that your five loaves and two fish are not enough. That's when he wins. You are all enough. And he wins when you look at yourself and you say, ah, this is fine over here and I'm pretty good at these things, but these places, these are the ones that God would never use me in. Those are the places I believe that God wants to use you in. They're the places that I believe he might want to use you in the most. A few places that I feel like we can give something away where we might feel deficient right now. Just for some practicals. Finances. Finances are hard. They're very scary. Um, I, I was uh, talking with... I, I, I can't remember who. I was talking with somebody in here. Um, but I was talking with somebody in here about how I'm a counter. Every time Every time we like swipe our cards somewhere, I'm like, okay, so this is where we're going to be then. and This is what that's going to look like. And that means okay, I'm a counter, it is something that is always in my head, always in my head, and it is, it's honestly like, it can be crippling at times, because it takes away joy from things that should be joyful, and it takes away uh, opportunities, honestly, for generosity for me. Generosity and tithing are two things where I think we can always challenge ourselves, no matter where you're at, if you feel like I'm in a great financial state right now, or if you feel like, I can actually probably use something a little bit more. You're going for that next position, next promotion, next job, whatever it might be. But finances are a place that I believe that God is always challenging in us because it's one of our most earthly possessions. It's one thing that is literally going nowhere with you. and can be taken away so quickly as it, as it can be taken given so quickly. It is not something we should be hanging our hat on. How generous are you? in your relationships with your family, with your friends. How generous are you? I believe this is a place that we can all grow. It's a place that God might be wanting to create some depth in you right now. Um, the second one is tithing. Let's to his church. Um, I think I feel less awkward having this conversation than Mike because he's the pastor here. Uh, but uh, um, this church runs on you. Um, it runs on you. We don't get to do this without... Um, what we give to this place. And if you've never tithed, um, that's okay. That's great. But I think now's a wonderful time to start. I think now is a wonderful time to start. And if you want to um, talk to me about what that looks like and what my journey has been with that, uh, which is ever-evolving, not a place that I feel like I'm the tithing expert, um, but it, it is, it is ever-evolving, I, I would love to go on that journey with you. Second one is time. Time for me is serving. Time is giving time to people you don't have time for. Who's the person in your life you don't have time for? What's the situation in your life you don't have time for? Jesus found time. What were they doing at the beginning of this story? They were looking to escape. They were looking to get away. They were looking to rest. And Jesus found time. And that could be a church here. We obviously need volunteers. We need people to hold babies. We need people to set up and do all sorts of things. But that's also in your um, relationships and in your friendships, particularly with people who don't believe the same thing as you. People who make it hard for you. People who take your energy away. Excuse me. What kind of time do you have for them? We'll um, be brief about this point, but it's 2020. which it means it's an election year, which means we will have a lot of conversations with people who we don't have the same, believe the same things about. How... Do you use your time? Do you use it to expand the kingdom of heaven or do you use it to be hateful, regardless of what that person might believe? This is my TED Talk. (laughs) The last piece, forgiveness. People who have hurt you. Forgiveness is a really hard one because there are many people who hurt us continually. There are those who don't want to forgive on the other side, and I believe God has called us to forgive regardless? Are there people who have hurt you in your life? Are there people who continue to hurt you in your life? How do you forgive them? How do you give them forgiveness, even if you're not going to get it back? These are a few places I feel ill-equipped. I feel ill-equipped. And if you resonate with any of those, let's go on a journey together to find where we can go, ask God to do a miracle both in us and through us there. Those are the two questions for me great. Um, So we're going to respond um, by a little time of communion right now and worship. Um, We're going to sing one song on the back end here. And I think there's no better way to cap off this story than by doing communion. So um, I know usually we have people come up to the front, but we're actually going to pass communion out this time. Um, So our our ushers will do that. Um, It's going to get real moody in here with the lights. Um, As you get the bread, the juice and you dip it in the juice, um, I just want you to to think about a few questions, which I will walk you through. First is, where do I feel most inadequate? Where do I feel most inadequate? Where are the places that I feel like God has kind of forgotten me? Where do I feel hurt? Where do I feel like I lack energy? Where do I feel like I have something to give? if you've identified those things, I want to pray for you. Um, I would encourage you to share with somebody what those things are. Don't go on these journeys alone. They are not made to go on them alone. We're made to go on them with people. We're made to go on them in community. Inadequacy is hard. Identifying it is hard. Um, if you're anything like me, you don't want to believe that you have them. Um, but I think identifying them is the first step. And identifying them is going to allow you to invite God into them to do something miraculous in your life and through your life. Um, so now holding the bread that we just took um, for communion. Uh, if y'all it's okay. I always, I always mess that up. Sorry, it was bad directions on my part. Um, but uh, holding the bread that we took. I just want this to symbolize this bread as you take it, to symbolize God filling up your inadequacy. So we can go ahead and take the bread now. God, we pray for a miracle not only in our lives, but through our lives. God, we pray for the places that we feel insecure. God, we pray for the places that we feel broken. We pray that you were in tune with what you were doing. God, we pray for the places that are shaky, where the ground under us doesn't feel firm. God, we pray um, that you are able, um, we are able to feel you in those moments, God. We give you this moment, God, we trust your power with what we have, big or small. We invite your spirit, God, into the small, insecure places of our lives. We invite your spirit into the places where we feel strong because we know, God, that without you, we are just five loaves and two fish. And that with you, we can do a miracle. We love you, God. We trust that you are doing a work in our life. We trust that you are doing a work in our church. God, we pray that we come and look for those miracles, God. We look for those opportunities, knowing that you want to work in the places that we feel that like we have the least. We thank you for this moment, God. We thank you for this church. And be with us as we worship and close it up.